Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6. As we continue through our series through the book of Joshua called Every Promise Fulfilled, we've come this morning to Joshua chapter 6. Last week, from chapter 5, we saw the Lord have Israel renew their covenant relationship with him. God commanded all the males to receive the, the covenant sign of circumcision. And this declared to Israel that they were marked off as God's chosen people. They also celebrated the Passover for the first time in the promised land, reminding them that, that they had been delivered from bondage by God's sovereign power. And that they are God's people now. They've been redeemed. They've been purchased by him. And he has graciously given them precious promises. And right before their very eyes, they're seeing many of these promises come to fruition. They are now in the promised land. The manna has stopped. They're no longer wandering in the wilderness. Instead, they are eating the produce of the land, of the promised land. The land that was that was. Uh, promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So finally, then, we saw that Joshua was visited by God himself in order to remind Joshua that God was leading them and God was fighting for them. So now that Israel is spiritually prepared, it's time for the, the conquest of the Canaanite nations to begin. And with this first battle, this battle of Jericho, if you can call it a battle, God wants to set the tone. He wants to drive home truths for Israel that they will remember throughout the entire conquest. Truths like the other nations are no match for God. He, the God of Israel, is the one true God. All these other gods of the Canaanites are false He is Lord of heaven and earth, and he has promised to drive out the nations from before them, and that God will keep his promises. So all all those truths should just be uh, ringing in their ears and being planted deep in their hearts with this first victory. So the title of the sermon this morning is Faith in God's Powerful Promise. Faith in God's powerful promise. And we are going to see some different themes today. We're going to see God's judgment. So we'll be reminded of God's holiness. We're going to see God's power once again. We're we're going to see God's grace in giving uh, sinful people like Israel promises. And even being their covenant God. And then, um, although God is the hero of the story, we are going to see the, the... Joshua and the people of Israel respond in faith. And so we want to make sure and not miss that. That they, they believed the promises of God. And, and that belief was, was uh, demonstrated through their actions. Okay, so those are some of the, the themes uh, and truths that we want to be sure and glean from this chapter today. And, and I decided to work through it under three headings. Just, to, just trying to simplify it. And, and give us some, some sense of order and, and progress here. So the three headings are promise given, promise believed, and promise fulfilled. All right, so let's start with number one, promise given. The promise is going to come in verse two. 
But verse 1 sets the scene for us. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. So picture that, right? This great city of Jericho, fortified, a garrison city with a mighty wall. It, it's, everything's buttoned up, right? There, the city of Jericho was bracing for an attack from Israel. The, the whole city is on lockdown, right? No one is, is going in, no one's coming out. They are trying to defend themselves against Israel. They've heard, we know from chapter 2 and Rahab telling the spies, right, that, that all of the city of Jericho was in fear. They had heard of the great deeds of Israel's God, how he destroyed Egypt and, and delivered them and through the Red Sea, completely drowning the, the Egyptian army and how he had, now had done the same thing to the Jordan River, parted the Jordan. And we also know they'd heard about the victories that God had won for them on, on the beyond the Jordan, against the the two kings of the Amorites. Of course, Rahab, a citizen of Jericho, what what we saw in chapter 2, when she heard these reports, what did she do? She responded with repentance and faith. She acknowledged that Yahweh is Lord of heaven and earth. And she forsook the, the false gods of Canaan. She believed God's promise to give the land to Israel. And so she sought to escape the coming judgment. That was about to befall on her city. She threw herself then on the mercy of the Lord and on his people. And we, we talked about that several weeks ago. The reach of God's sovereign grace. She, God saved her. Physically and we're going to see from this chapter. She became one of the, the Israelites. She worshipped God now. Yahweh. And I bring that up to say. When we see verse 1 here and, and what, what Jericho is doing, the whole city of Jericho could have responded the way Rahab did, right? They could have said, Joshua, we've heard, we, we acknowledge Yahweh is the one true God. And we believe that he's given you this land and, and you know, it's yours. And, and we want to worship the one true God. We want to be incorporated into that relationship that you have with, with God. The whole city could have responded that way. The whole city could have repented. I mean, later we're going to see the whole city of Nineveh repent, right? At, at the preaching of Jonah. So Jericho could have done that. But they did not. They continued in their unbelief and resistance. And so, yeah, verse 1 is showing that, right? They've, they've shut everything up. They're... They're ready to fight. They're ready to defend themselves. They're ready to resist and oppose the God of Israel. And those, the, the city gates being shut is just it, symbolic. It reminds us of their very hearts were shut off to God as well. They've shut their hearts to the Lord. So that's the scene. Then, and now in verse 2, we see God give Joshua a promise, a promise of, of total victory here. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Don't you love that? I have given. <laughs> what tense is that verb in? <laughs> it's the past tense, isn't it? I mean, it hasn't really happened yet, but it's, it's so guaranteed God can say it in the past tense. Like, I've already, this is a done deal. 
right? Because of God's sovereign power, victory is guaranteed. It's so certain that God states it as a completed action already, even though Joshua and the Israelites haven't yet experienced it. So verse 2 is just stated as a fact, as a fact. I've given the city into your hands. God's already given Jericho into the hands of Joshua and the Israelites. Now they need only to claim that victory by carrying out the instructions that God will give them here in verses 3 through 5. So look at verse 3 with me. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around this city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So here's the instructions for them. For each of the next six days, the whole army of Israel is to march around the the city walls of Jericho once. And right in the middle of the armed men, the ark of the Lord is to be carried, and and along with seven priests going before it, blowing seven trumpets. Okay, so this this, uh, ceremonial procession is to be taking place over the next six days, and then we'll see a special way on the seventh day. So this procession will march around the entire city once per day for six days. Then on the seventh day, we'll learn they're to march around the city seven times, right? And you're going to see seven just pop up all over the place in this chapter. And you might be thinking, what is up with that, right? Why all these sevens? Well, in Scripture, seven is the number of, that represents divine perfection or completeness, Because on the seventh day, God rested from his work of creation. So seven is significant. So after that seventh time around then, the priests will give a final blow on their trumpets. And then the people will shout a great shout and the walls of Jericho will fall down. Right, we see that here in in, um, verse 5. The the wall of the city will fall down flat. If you have an ESV in front of you, the footnote gives the literal translation, right? The wall of the city will fall under itself. That's literally what it says. So it's not that the wall is going to be knocked down from the outside. It's it's as if uh, it's going to collapse from pressure from above. (laughs) As if God himself was just kind of sticking his finger down on that wall. Boom! It's going to fall down flat. And as you think about this procession... The focus is not on the armed men. No, the focus is right on the, it's not even really on the priests and the trumpets. The focus is right on the Ark of the Covenant. Just as we saw uh, the Ark have a, a central role in, when they crossed the Jordan in chapters, chapter 3. Likewise, it has a central role in this, right? Remember, the Ark of the Lord is the symbolic presence of the Lord, showing that Showing everyone that God, the Lord of heaven and earth, is the God of Israel. He has made this special covenant with Israel. He is their God. He is with them. And the Lord is in their very midst, bringing about this great victory. So that should be very evident who is doing this. It's God. God has promised Joshua victory over Jericho. And he's explained now how Israel is to participate in that victory. 
So then in verses 6 and 7, Joshua will relay God's words to the people. Right? Joshua's received his marching orders. Now he's going to pass those on to the people in verse 6, which leads us to our second heading. Right? We had promise given, and now we have promise believed. Promise believed. And if you don't mind a second word being added there, to, even though it interrupts the flow, promise believed and obeyed. Right? And that's what it means to truly believe, is to obey it. Promise believed and obeyed. See that in verses 6 through 19. Look at verse 6 with me. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. So Joshua gave them, the people of Israel, the Lord's instructions. And think about it. How's Israel's army going to respond to this? <laughs> right? Are they going to balk at this plan to simply march around the wall? <laughs> Are they going to question what, what in the world could this procession hope to accomplish, Joshua? No, we don't see that at all. We see in verse 8 that Israel immediately obeys. Look at verse 8. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. So what we're seeing here is the first day. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets and the rear guard was walking after the ark and while the trumpets trumpets blew continually. We get a little more detail here in verse 10. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle around the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. So there's the first day, right? Israel marches around the wall that first day just as Joshua commanded. Again, just to get it in your mind's eye. Seven priests blowing seven trumpets of ram's horns, followed by the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, armed men in front and in back. The priests are blowing their trumpets continually, but everyone else is being silent, just marching, right? Joshua told them strictly to be silent until he tells them to shout, One trip around and then they spend the night back in the camp. Then they do the same thing on the second day in verse 12. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. Right? Six days, six times marching around Jericho with the priests blowing the trumpets before the ark. But then a change comes on the seventh day. Look at verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. See, this is like a religious procession. This is like God claiming this turf. He's saying, I am Lord of heaven of heaven and earth. I am the creator. I'm marking this off. This is mine. Verse 16, and at the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. Then we get some more instruction. Verse 17, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she had 
because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourself Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So as we've seen in previous chapters, uh, this this seems to be a literary technique that the, the writer of Joshua uses, again under the inspiration of the Spirit. The verb in verse 16 uh, is probably better translated, Joshua had said, right? But again, the the writer likes to do this where it's like uh, things are just coming to a head and and you're just starting to get close to where the climax is going to be and then he inserts some prior instructions (laughs) by way of Joshua, right? We've seen him do that with the crossing the Jordan and I think on another occasion as well. But I guess... And it was a way of him building up the anticipation for this climax to happen. And so that's what we have going on here. Right? You have in verse 16, they've gone around the seventh time. Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. But we don't hear them shout yet because then we have this extra instruction given to us that Joshua had given to them at some point. What is that instruction? Well, Joshua tells Israel that all of Jericho, except Rahab and her family, are to be devoted to destruction. That phrase, things that are devoted to destruction, means to give things over to the Lord as an offering by totally destroying them. We see the gold, silver, and bronze and iron vessels are to be put in the treasury of the Lord, but everything else in Jericho is to be destroyed completely. And we'll see down in verse 21 that that includes all the men, women, and children of the city. And I know that this is a hard thing for us today to hear and to try to get our minds around exactly why would God have Israel destroy entire cities? And so we need to just kind of pause and talk about that for a minute. Haven't talked about it yet in the series of of Joshua, so now's the right time, I think, as we have this first battle. The conquest of Canaan, keep, bear, bear this in mind, the conquest of Canaan was not only God keeping his promise to give land to Abraham's descendants, and it was certainly that, and we have tried to highlight that, but the conquest of Canaan was also a means of God bringing judgment on wicked nations. And we need to realize that, that the Canaanites here, the people of Jericho, they were wicked, idolatrous people. Their wickedness is, is graphically described in Leviticus 18 where it goes into the different sins that, that men commit. Uh, sexual perversions, child sacrifices, other abominations to God their creator. And, and in Leviticus 18 as, as those are being detailed then down in verse 24 of that chapter God says for by all these things, all those sins The nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So God describes what is going to take place under Joshua and the Israelites as a a way of purging, as a way of judging, and and, uh, cleaning out the land from its sin, its, its abominations. Go back even further... Back to Genesis 15, and, and if you remember, that's one of the chapters that talks where God is interacting with Abram about the covenant. First, 
gives it to him in, in chapter 12. Then in 15, it's ratified with the sacrifices. And then in 17, it's repeated. And I believe that's where his name is changed to Abraham. But back in Genesis 15, that middle chapter, when God is ratifying the covenant with Abram, God tells Abram that his descendants will be slaves in Egypt for 400 years and then that God will bring them back to the promised land. And he explains the timing of all that with this statement in Genesis 15, 16. And if you're a note taker, I encourage you, whether in your Bible or bulletin, whatever, write down Genesis 15, 16. It's pertinent to, to this when we think about the conquest of Canaan. Because there God is explaining the timing of when this will happen, when Israel will... will go back into the land and will actually inhabit the land for themselves. He says at the end of that verse, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Remember, that's what he's saying to Abram at that time. In other words, he's saying, I'm not going to have your descendants do the, go into the land and possess it now. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. But in 440 some years, it will be. And so again, that just kind of gives us the picture of what this looks like from God's vantage point, that God is, had waited. He had waited 400 plus years, and, and certainly even before that, right, before Abram. But God waited while the Amorites continued in their wickedness. That's, the, that's describing the Canaanites as, the, as a whole. While they continued in their wickedness, God waited because he is long-suffering, as he's waiting, just year after year, generation after generation of all these perversions, the sacrifices, the false worship, the idolatry, the, just the, the perverting of his law and his ways, God waited. And it's like, it's like their, their sins were just kind of being piled up, you know, like in a bucket, right? Like, I know I've used this illustration before, but like in, the, in one of those splash zone areas where the big bucket just fills up to a point, to a point, to a point, to a point, and then finally it's going to dump, right? That's how it was with God's judgment. The sins of the Amorites, the sins of these people of Canaan was just piling up and piling up. God is long-suffering, but there is a point where his patience runs out, and he says, now's the time to judge. Judgment is always God's last resort, and in the case of the Canaanites, it came after generations of them, as the Bible would say, provoking God by their wickedness. Another verse to write down, Deuteronomy 9.5. Moses, as he was telling Israel about going into the land, he says in Deuteronomy 9.5 that it's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, talking to Israel, that you are going in to possess the land. But it's because of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. <laughs> so he told Israel, it's not that you guys are so great that you deserve this land. I mean, you guys are sinners as well, right? But, you know, again, in God's amazing grace, he had made this covenant with them, provided a way for atonement to be made of their sins through animal sacrifices, looking ahead to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. So he says, it's not that you guys deserve it, but I'm, I'm doing this really for two reasons. One, to keep my promise that I've made to, the, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And two, to judge the wickedness of the Canaanites. So we've talked 
a lot about him keeping his promises, but we need to understand it's also to judge, right? But let us, so as we keep that in mind, let us understand that the conquest of Canaan is not ethnic cleansing, okay? Some people will try to, you know, some opponents of the Bible will will accuse it of that. This is not ethnic cleansing. This is God judging sin. Another way we could say that is God doesn't hate Canaanites. God hates sin. And again, I remind you, as we see with Rahab and her family, and we've already seen it uh, predicted, now in this chapter it's going to actually happen. They get spared. So as we see with Rahab and her family, God would have spared any Canaanites who repented of their idolatry and desired to follow Yahweh and become part of Israel. But sadly, most of them did not. All right, we see Rahab later in kind of an odd way in chapter 9. We're going to see the Gibeonites uh, kind of repent, but through deception. But at least they acknowledge that they're in trouble and and they are spared. Think about the Canaanites had the testimony of creation. They had God's law written on their heart or the, the, the reality of God and their, their accountability to him was, was on their, their very hearts. They heard about God's mighty deeds on behalf of Israel, but again, most of them hardened their hearts, refusing to repent, refusing to worship Yahweh. And so just as we saw back in Genesis, God used the waters of the flood to judge wickedness. Here in Joshua, God uses the army of Israel to judge wickedness. Now again, understand, this is not a blank check for Israel. This is not, certainly not a pattern for God's people for all times. No, this was was a specific exercise of God's wrath at a specific time in history. And to just elaborate on that, here's a helpful quote from one of the commentaries I'm using, written by David Howard. Quote, We should note that the instructions to Israel to annihilate the Canaanites were specific in time, intent, and geography. That is, Israel was not given a blanket permission to do the same to any peoples they encountered at any time or in any place. Let me pause that and just say, when you look back in the law, there's certain commands for Israel and how they conduct warfare outside of Canaan or, you know, separate from this conquest. There were rules they were to follow, and then there were were these rules for the conquest itself, okay? Um, okay, Israel's not given blanket permission to do the same to any peoples they encountered at any time or any place. Continuing in the quote, it was limited to the crucial time when Israel was just establishing itself as a theocracy under God to protect Israel's worship as well as to punish these specific peoples. Ah, so there's... Yet another purpose behind this that came out in that. Did you notice that? And that the Bible explains that. Joshua was not only executing God's judgment on the wicked pagan nations, but remember, what's he doing? He's establishing Israel as a theocracy in the promised land. And Deuteronomy chapter 20 explains that destroying the Canaanites was for Israel's protection. Another important passage cross-reference, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18. 
But in the cities, I'm, I'm reading it now, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. Right? Same phrase we see in Joshua. The, the Hittites the, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, here's the reason, verse 18, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So see, that was another purpose behind this. God didn't want those Canaanites influencing Israel. And we know how easily influenced they were, right? He did not want the wicked Canaanites to teach Israel their detestable practices. So, again, you know, I, I, I spend a little time on this because it's important and it's something we need to understand as we're trying to make sense of this. The conquest was a specific situation for the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant. And again, even, even they were not allowed to just do this throughout their history, right? As believers now then under the New Covenant, we have a very different commission, right? Joshua is fulfilling his commission, that God has given him for the nation of Israel. We, certainly in the New Covenant, have a very different commission. It's called what? The Great Commission from the Lord Jesus Christ himself to go into all the nations and make disciples. So again, we talked about this in Sunday school, but we, we have to be very wise and careful when we interpret our Bibles. We don't just take something that Israel did and say, oh wow, that's, that's prescriptive for us to go do now. No, our, the Bible is clear. Our battle, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against the, the powers and rulers in and, and spiritual places, right? Our battle is a spiritual battle. And so we go, what, yielding the word of God. <laughs> That's our sword. We go standing in the gospel armor, right? We go to make disciples. And, and we should, again, we talked about this when we started the series of Joshua, we should think of it as warfare. I mean, that's how the New Testament describes it, right? May we, may we be alert. May we be sober-minded that we're, we are in a battle, loved ones. We don't live in a neutral world. The world is trying to influence us and drag us toward its wicked and de- rebellious desires. But praise God that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And, and we actually, not, we're called to stand firm, but we're also called to proclaim the gospel And so as we proclaim the gospel, we're actually bringing God's deliverance to people, right? Through the gospel, they too can be set free from bondage to sin and evil. Okay? All right, so so far we've seen promise given. We'll, We'll get back into Joshua 6 specifically now. We've seen promise given and we've seen promise believed, right? Israel, had, they, they believed. How do we know they believed? Well, they obeyed. <laughs> they did what God told them to do. They demonstrated faith, as Hebrews 11 told us. Now, thirdly and finally, in verse 20, I'll, we'll just finish off the chapter under this third and final heading. Promise fulfilled. Promise fulfilled. Look at verse 20. Remember, remember we had that little parenthesis of the, the, the extra instructions, right? Joshua had, had said, you know, uh, well, now I forget how it was, but like something about, when I, I'm getting ready to tell you to shout, right? Or, or now, shout, right? You finished your seventh time around, now's the time to shout. 
essentially is what he said. Verse 20, so the people shouted (laughs) and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. They've been silent this whole time, right? They've been obeying. They've, They've waited for this moment. And now God tells them to shout. God, through his servant Joshua, tells them to shout. And they do. And what happens? The wall fell down flat. Same description as we saw earlier. Just collapsed on itself from above. Fell down flat so that the people were able to go up into the city. Every man straight before him. And they captured the city. In verse 21, they carry out the commandments, the commands they were given. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. So it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, this happens a lot in the Bible. The actual miracle itself, the actual <laughs> climax is really recorded and des- described very succinctly, right? But right there in verse 20, we see another beautiful display of God's sovereign power. As soon as the people shouted, the great walls of Jericho fell flat. Again, think about that. This was the best that sinful man could do. I mean, I'm sure they'd put all their technology, all their engineering, all their reinforcements, all their hopes were in that wall, the, the wicked people of Jericho. But it was no match for God. Right? You know, I'm thinking about how the way the Psalms describe stuff. He probably just blew on it, right? You know? <laughs> Boom. All their opposition, all their resistance was no match for God's mighty power. And just as God said back in verse 2, he gave Jericho into the hands of Israel. Then in verse 22, we see another promise fulfilled. Right? A specific promise for for Rahab and her family that that they would be saved, that they would be spared. Right? That that was all talked about back in chapter 2. Verse 22, but to the two men who had spied out the land, remember those guys? Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. Kind of interesting to think about what that must have looked like because remember we know that her, her house was in the wall. <laughs> so, you know, she had the scarlet cord for one thing, but I'm guessing it was pretty easy to find her house, you know, because it was probably all that was left standing, you know. Verse 23, So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. So she had obeyed, right? She had done what they said. You bring them all there. That's the only way they're going to be safe. You bring them into your house. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So Rahab and her family are saved from destruction Rather than than them being devoted to destruction, they have devoted themselves to God by leaving their Canaanite paganism and becoming part of Israel and worshiping Yahweh. The account ends with Joshua declaring an oath in verse 26. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. 
Because Jericho was the first city of the conquest, it was, there was a symbolism here, right? And so it was to remain in ruins as an ongoing symbolic reminder of God's power and God's judgment against sin. So therefore, anybody, Joshua is saying, anybody who would try to rebuild this, that's an act of rebellion against God. So Joshua warns, whoever tries to rebuild this, you're going to lose your firstborn son and your youngest son. And if you're interested, that actually happened. 1 Kings 16.34, the words of the curse come true for Hillel of Bethel, who loses his sons when he rebuilds Jericho. Then in verse 27, we see yet another promise from God fulfilled, right? I mean, and, and we've seen this theme throughout, but again, these are, I say promise, these are things that God was, was telling Joshua would happen, and they're happening. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. <laughs> see the connection there, right? Why is Joshua famous? Because God is with him, and everybody's seen that. From what's been taking place. God promised Joshua back in chapter 1 that he would be with him. Again in chapter 3 God said he would be with Joshua. And in chapter 3 that was in regard to the crossing the Jordan. He said I'm going to exalt you before all Israel. And we saw once, that, once they crossed the Jordan that did happen. Joshua was being exalted before all Israel. And they're saying wow just as God was with Moses. Now he's with Joshua. You are definitely our chosen leader. You know we're going to b- obey you and follow you. Well, now Joshua's fame is spreading, not just in Israel, but it's spreading even beyond. That's what it says. And his fame was in all the land. It spread through all the land of Canaan. And of course, as his fame spreads, that the ultimate glory goes back to God. The God of Israel is the true God. He is fighting for his people. He is, he is uh, accomplishing these great victories for his people. He's keeping his promises. And so as we wrap this up today, I want us to see from the fall of Jericho, again, some themes, right? That God is powerful, that he keeps his promises, and that on the basis of his promises, we are to respond with faith-filled obedience. That's kind of the application I want to hone in on. That on the basis of God's promises, we are to respond with faith-filled obedience. You saw the two people that were mentioned in Hebrews 11, right, that are in this story. I say people, two, two groups or whatever. Rahab is mentioned, and the, the people, Joshua and the people of Israel are mentioned. That they had faith. Faith in the promises of God, and that faith resulted in them taking action, in them obeying God. We've also seen today the the judgment of God against sin. And so it's an appropriate time to just talk to any today who who is not a follower of Christ. Again, you know, I know we're in a different culture, different context, but it is the same God and, and we're reminded that he is holy and that he takes sin very seriously. And all these judgments that we see play out in in whether it be the Old Testament or maybe even the New, those are all just foretastes of a final judgment that is coming, the Bible says. Jesus has already lived and died and rose again in the place of sinners and now he reigns at the Father's right hand in heaven. And the Bible says one day he is coming again. He's coming again to gather his own 
to raise them from the dead, to, to usher them into his eternal kingdom. And also he's coming to judge his enemies once and for all. And just as we said, God's, God is long-suffering. He is patient. The New Testament says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith in Christ. But there is a day that his patience will run out. And, and again, only God knows the day, but there's, there's a day when Christ will return and it'll be too late to turn from your sins. It'll be too late to forsake your living for yourself. It'll be too late to embrace Jesus as Savior, to say, yes, you are Lord, I want to live for you. And so if any of you have not done that today, I, I urge you to do that. And I want you to know there are some promises in the Bible about doing that. Right? We're all sinners. We're all sinners who need a Savior. And by God's grace, many of us have trusted in Jesus as our Savior. And I would urge everyone to do that. God has made some powerful, gracious promises about doing that. That though your sins are like scarlet, you will be white as snow. Because Jesus' life, death, and resurrection will have paid for your sins. The Bible uses the language, his blood will have cleansed you from your sin. You'll be credited with his perfection in God's eyes. And so you'll be white as snow. Another promise that Jesus said, talking about those who, who needed rest for their souls. They were weary of trying to, trying to work and trying to earn their way to heaven, trying to earn favor with God. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and you will find rest. Another promise. For God so loves the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That means by faith embracing him as Savior and Lord. Another promise that Jesus gave. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So there are some beautiful promises given to any who would turn from their sins and come to Christ. And in order for you to experience those promises, you must respond in faith. You must believe. You must come. You must forsake and and follow Jesus. Respond in faith. A real faith that is accompanied by action. A faith that admits you're a sinner. A faith that believes that Christ alone can save you. A faith that embraces him as Lord and desires to follow him with your life. Not perfectly, but you want to follow him and grow closer to him. A faith that turns from the way of sin and trusts in Christ alone for your eternal salvation. A faith that forsakes living for yourself and instead choosing to follow Christ as Lord and teacher. To learn from him, to grow from him. If you respond in that kind of faith, then all those promises I said earlier will be yours. You'll be washed and be white as snow. You'll have eternal life. You won't perish. And that means um, be punished eternally. Again, if, if, if I or any of the, really anyone in this church, I was going to say any of the elders, 
can help you with that, please come and talk to us. And I close with this for for Christians today, for followers of Christ. I want to remind you, God has made powerful promises to his people. And again, I mean, how can, you know, that, that would take... A series of sermons to go through all the promises, but I just thought of a few that, that I leave you with. Promises that need to be embraced and acted upon by faith, okay? Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. What's the promise? If you abide in Christ, you will bear much fruit. So what do we need to do to experience that promise? Abide in Christ, right? In your presence there is fullness of joy. Psalm 16, 11. Walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever, 1 John 2. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, Isaiah 26.3. These and many other promises, loved ones, are given to us, but they are experienced through our faith-filled obedience. Right? Again, we bear much fruit for God's glory as we abide in Christ. We don't gratify the flesh as we walk by the Spirit. We experience perfect peace as we keep our mind fixed on Christ. Simply giving mental assent to these promises without acting on them really accomplishes very little. One more quote, this time from commentator David Jackman said, obedient action in response to divinely given promises is the channel by which the sovereign grace of their covenant Lord is experienced in the lives of his people. Do you get that picture? God has grace, ongoing grace for his people and the way, the channel that that comes to us is through our obedience to his promises again not that we are earning his favor but it's just the means of it's taking part in the means of grace so loved ones let us learn the promises of God be in the word and by God's enabling let us respond in faithful obedience that the power of God may be seen in us and through us for our joy and for God's glory Father, we stand in awe of you today as, again, we see um, really several aspects of your character, Lord. We, we see your, your, your holiness, your, your, your justice, your, your wrath against sin. And uh, may that be a good reminder to us of, of those of us who are in Christ, what we've been saved from. Those who are not in Christ, what we need to be saved from. Lord, And we praise you and thank you for your your grace and mercy in sending your son, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If there's any here today who have not been delivered yet, Lord, may you, by, by your grace, work in their hearts and draw them to repentance and faith in Christ. And Lord, help us as your people to, to walk by faith as we sing, to believe the promises, to know the promises, to be in your word and be, be re- reveling in these promises and 
and help us to then live those out. And Father, we need your help for that because again, we are in a daily battle. We're in a daily battle of of what we are going to believe. We're in a daily battle to walk by faith and not by sight when the world is is pumping so much uh, at us through sight and through the desires of our old nature. Oh God, please help us walk by faith that we may experience the joy and the blessings of of your many um, gracious promises to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and we'll conclude with a song and a benediction.